Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome lovers of product. If you love listening to this podcast, you might be interested to know that some of our previous guests will be headlining the Product Craft Conference. So the Product Craft Conference is in San Francisco. It's coming up. It's on February 25th, and tickets are on sale now. You can get them at productcraft.com slash conference. So welcome over as a product. I am here today with Darren Chait, co-founder of Hugo. Why don't you kick this off, Darren, by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So I've had a slightly different journey into doing what we do today. I'm a corporate attorney by background. Hopefully, please don't hate me too much there. So I spent my whole life in meetings and uh, and, and working for in, in, in a big corporate sort of old-fashioned environment, which inspired a lot of the story of Hugo, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And that was in Australia where I grew up. I moved over to the San Francisco Bay Area about three years ago to start Hugo with an old friend of mine, Josh. And now we're now now we're building Hugo in the US and uh, haven't looked back. So tell me about the story behind Hugo. You know yeah. what what problem you're trying to solve. You know what made you start this company and solve that problem. Take me through it. Sure. So like many, it comes from a personal pain point, and I think a lot of great products are built that way. For us specifically, it sort of hit us from two angles. As I mentioned before, I. You know, being in law and essentially charging people to go to meetings, not only charging people to go to meetings, you're seeing the direct cost of terrible meetings. When you walk out of that, that conversation that was just an update where nothing interesting was, was raised, discussed, resolved, it hurts like it does for all of us. And then when you see a bill to the client for thousands of dollars, you really understand the cost to companies of poor meetings uh, front and center. So with that as, as, as a background and as, you know, sort of inspire, uh, inspiration for us to get started, Josh, my co-founder, who was in product, um, also obviously spending a lot of his life in meetings, set out to solve this. But we actually went about it the wrong way. We thought the problem with meetings or the opportunity with meetings was around preparation. So we built a mobile app that would go and brief you on the PPO meeting and focus on the pre-meeting experience. And uh, we acquired some users and, and things were going okay, not great. But something happened quite quickly where the more we spent time talking to our customers, building partnerships, raising money, all everything out of the office, the more we became disconnected from our team. So we'd come back to the office, you know, at the end of the day with all these great ideas, but the team just couldn't relate. They weren't there. They weren't in the room. They sort of just had to take what we said as gospel and felt like they couldn't add anything to it. And that naturally drives team silos. Whoever is there has the information. And if I'm in another team or another function, I don't know that. And we were really sort of pushing in different directions. So I can't remember whose idea it was, but someone in the team said, hey, what if we add a feature to the product we were working on at the time related to meetings where I could just jot down some notes, great conversation with Eric. He had this great idea. What if we did this and that? But instead of just storing it, let's share it via Slack. Let's go and post that automatically to a relevant Slack channel and, we can, and we'll prompt you for those notes by integrating your calendar. So you can see that Eric and Darren are in a meeting right now, ask what happened and share that to Slack. And literally overnight, our business transforms. We come back and everyone was sitting there going, hey man, I saw that conversation um, you had earlier. I mocked up something really cool or I've actually got a different idea. What if we did it this way? 
even though that engineer, that marketer, that designer, whoever was never in the room. And obviously pulling on that thread further and further, we realized that great meetings means great culture, which means great companies. And Hugo became what it is today, which we call connected meeting notes software. So centralized, searchable, and actionable meeting notes and agendas that aligns teams and, 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 and really becomes the next interface for teamwork. So talk to me about the, the productivity boost by using Hugo. Yeah. So there's a few different ways to measure that. You've got, in one sense, team members are going to less irrelevant meetings. So if, if those meetings where you just need to know or you just need the update or you want to know what happened, I don't need to sit in the room for the hour. We can have collaborative meeting notes. We can have the actions created via Hugo that are pushed out to me using Jira, Trello, Asana, whatever tools we're using. So from a productivity standpoint, I have more time to get stuff done because I'm not in the room if I don't need to be in the room. But more importantly, by collaboratively preparing for meetings and having everyone manage the meeting in that way, you've got meetings really boiled down to what they should be for which is discussion, idea generation, and decision-making. So from a productivity standpoint, you're getting a much higher ROI for meetings, if you like. So Now talk to me about product management at Hugo, right? And our listeners always want to hear about how different companies tackle product management. You have an eight-person team at Hugo. Mm-hmm. You know, what does product management there look like? This is something we've thought a lot about and, again, learned lots of tough lessons. Um, and there's obviously incredible people out there to learn from, you know, this show included. Product management for us is, we think about it this way. Product management, it's really important to have strong product management at a founder level in the early days, in our view, so we can drive the vision and direction for the company. We're a software company. Our product is why we exist. So outsourcing that, if you like, from a vision standpoint is going to lead us astray. Having said that, One of the biggest lessons we've learned, I touched on it earlier, is this concept of the idea meritocracy. Just because my title doesn't say product in it, it says engineer or designer or marketer or lawyer for for, all that matters, doesn't mean that I don't have the best idea in the room. So product management at Hugo, balancing those two competing ideas is very much an idea meritocracy where we have strong leadership and my co-founder josh runs product he he will ultimately make the decisions with all the inputs he will push the team in the direction we think we should go but we open up that web every week so we have a product check-in within almost the entire company at this stage where we will open up what we're thinking what the research says some ideas we've got and it's fair game for anyone to add ideas thoughts feedback whatever that however they think we should approach things the best idea will always win wherever it came from then the web closes and we drive that direction for the following week or two with this is the design, this is the product, this is the spec, and we open it up again. So it's collaborative with strong leadership, very much based on you know, Ray Dalio's concept of the idea meritocracy. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit more about the growth at Hugo, what you guys do to accelerate it, how that affects your product. Yeah, sure. I mean, so this is this is an area, this is at a, at a theme level, one of the reasons we fell in love with Pendo. Hugo is absolutely a product-led growth business. We're self-serve. We don't have a single salesperson. It's very much driven by marketing and people coming to us to solve that problem, excited about what we do. 
and we then have to go and we we then have to turn them into a user and a customer using product essentially. So for what, predominantly, what we're doing at the moment, most of our growth is organic, and that's sort of in two arms. One is at a content level, telling the story about why Hugo exists and offering real value to to the world around the space we're in. We like to think of ourselves as experts in modern meetings and the way teams should meet. And the more we talk about that, the more we share helpful information, the more we build best practice templates, the more people drive towards Hugo. And, you know, there's some great results there from an SEO standpoint, but more importantly, from a theme and category ownership standpoint. But I think what's even more interesting, and I know we were talking about this earlier, and no doubt I'd love the conversation to go there, is the other side of the organic growth, which is product-led. And uh, if yeah, if I can continue into that into into that yeah, into no, that I, realm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, product-led growth is trending everywhere in SaaS. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about driving growth within the product. Exactly. So, product-led growth for us is the idea that, of course, users acquire other users. But the difference between product-led growth, you know, two point like twenty twenty product-led growth versus the versions of it we saw a few years ago, is that product-led growth today means that or requires that the use of the product inherently requires growth and virality. So what I'm getting at is a few years ago, we saw a lot of, hey, go and invite your buddies and here's a $100 Amazon gift card. Or tell, you know, do you know five friends who may like this after you've completed a, an MPS survey yeah. or something like that? And we don't use MPS. There's a whole other great discussion happened there. But that was sort of growth, product-led growth 1.0. Product-led growth 2.0, the likes of Zoom, Calendly, these really great modern SaaS tools require me to grow uh, their user base to get more value out of Hugo. Every time that I send out a Calendly link, I get value as a user because I'm now making it easy to to schedule time. But at the exact same time, of course, I'm Calendly's best marketer or best salesperson. That's product-led growth in our eyes. The design of the product gets more value and increases the value to the users by growing their user base. Yeah, and talk to, so you guys are self-service, right? So yeah. talk to me about how that affects everything and ties in with the product-led growth. Yeah, totally. So self-serve is, is obviously a dream for lots of companies and it depends on the business model and the product. And uh, it, sometimes it makes no sense at all in a highly technical product. But in, in, other, in, in other products like Hugo, it makes perfect sense. We want people who wake up at 2 a.m. with the pain or walk out of that meeting, pulling their hair out, looking for a solution minutes later to be getting value out of Hugo. So that's why we're self-serve. It's in our DNA. It's culturally the business that Josh, myself, and the rest of the team now want to build. What is it? What's it like? It's unforgiving. So I've dealt with some really great account execs or customer success managers. And you know when there's a gap in your messaging or there's that feature that we don't quite do, but we have a workaround for, or these things that really get in the way of the funnel when you're trying to convert someone, great people can catch that. When I'm hesitating or I have that question that I'm not sure, the great account exec or, or business development rep or whoever in the process can catch that and help me get through it. When you're a self-serve product, you're not there. You don't even know what you're missing out on. People are churning in through the funnel without you even knowing that they were in the funnel a lot of the time. So to, be, to, to solve self-serve is really difficult because you have to Deal with every objection, every reason for someone to to leave, every potential challenge without even being there while they're going through that process. So that's what makes it really hard. But when you get it right, honestly, nothing beats waking up in the morning and seeing that you have all these great new users and great new companies getting value out of your products. And it's it's really, really a great feeling. It's an exciting way to be able to 
pursue our mission and vision and getting Hugo into more and more hands without having to scale and hire and, and, and the sort of more typical journey that larger software companies need to go through. Now, Abby, you know, one of the things I think about when self-service offers you are talking about like, oh, if the feature's not there, you know, it becomes difficult. But I often see like as companies mature that are driven, especially early by self-service, the products end up getting complex, right? As you add in more, more and more functionality and features into a product, they become more complex. And with them more complex, often self-service becomes more difficult, right? Because your, your users log in, instead of seeing like one or two choices or one or two things they can do at every point in time, now they see more. And guiding them in that kind of environment is very difficult, isn't it? Do you ever worry or slow down the creation of new functionality because of that? Yeah, I think, Eric, what you describe is probably one of the most fundamental product challenges we have. And, and like many, I, t- I totally agree. The the usual sort of discipline, if you like, to try and not bloat and, and try and solve all those problems, which in turn overwhelms and undermines the funnel, is really difficult. For us, the way we get around that, I think, is with the right metrics and measuring the right things. And we've spoken a lot about this and we've spoken at events together and things before around engagement scoring and and finding those real North stars that drive you in the right direction. It's very tempting to want to solve everyone's problems and deal with all this feedback and bloat and overwhelm. But if it's not in pursuit of what matters, what we're optimizing for as a business, which really is setting those right metrics and North stars, it allows easy discipline to say, we're not doing that. We can't build that. It's going to cause this problem. Yeah. So you, do you think self-service products say no more often than other kinds of products? That's a good, very good question. Or do you think you they need to, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was going to say that. I don't think they do, but I think they should. I think they should. Because That's you've got to remember as well, you're, if you're not a self, if you're a more of an enterprise sales product or, or not a self-serve company, to go and get insights from your customers, in many cases, You've got a really great proxy sitting there in your office or sitting there in your in, in your team. You can go and talk to 10 account execs and run ideas by them. They're the voice of the customer in many cases. And it's not the only source of information. And there's great products, as we both know, to help you get real voice of customer. But you have that insight. When you go to self-serve, you don't. You have to go and survey, collect information and look at analytics and understand what the customer is doing. And it's not nearly as strong. You don't have a customer success team fighting for the customer saying, you're crazy to build that or not to do that. And the temptation, therefore, is far greater. And that's why I agree. Self-serve companies need to be willing to do that more. But we don't because the temptation is so strong. So now with Hugo, do you think you'll always have no salespeople? Do you see you foresee yourself having salespeople as the company continues to grow? Or what do you think? Yeah, I, I think we will eventually, but not not by changing business models. What we've started to learn is that there's a sales a sales org is a very important part of a, of a great business for lots of reasons. One I just mentioned, right? Understand being across and understanding your customer and the way they buy in a very strong way. That's a, that we're missing out on that. We just have analytics and and survey data and research, right? So that's one example. But the other thing is companies buy in certain ways. Um, there's still a lack of willingness to spend a certain amount in many cases without talking to someone. But the process, the funnel, the, the the journey is changing. So one great example that we're all familiar with, let's talk about Dropbox, right? Dropbox acquires customers that had incredible growth over our, you know, over our lifetime because you sign up in a minute, you, you share a document or a folder with someone else, they sign up, you get free data by sharing, all that's great. Now, if I'm the CIO of a huge company, 
I, that's, I'm not going to go and you know enter into a multi hundred thousand multi hundred thousand dollar year contract because someone signed up with their corporate credit card and it looks kind of great. I want to talk to someone. That's how I make decisions. But to talk to someone at Dropbox, I'm now getting someone knocking on my door saying, "Hey, you've got 50 accounts who are getting great value out of the product, free or for very little money across the company. Let's talk about how we can offer greater value to the company now off the back of existing user value." and Slack grid, and, and there's all sorts of more modern examples as well. So I think that the need for sales and the way companies like our self-serve companies will scale sales logs is very different, much more of an inside sales or a customer success first sales model rather than a prospecting and, and sort of real beginning of the customer journey experience. Got it, got it. I think that makes a lot of sense. So going back to something you were talking about, you were talking about North Stars, you were talking about metrics, Let's dig into that a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, the analytics. Let's talk about how you get that from your product because, you know, obviously that's going to be your source being self-service. What metrics matter to you? What, what ones do you track? Yeah. So for us, and, uh, you know, a bit of a shameless plug there, that's how we actually got to Pendo before we even sort of got to know each other at, at, you know, at this level. Because one of the interesting mental shifts for us is from what I'm calling conventional analytics app sessions, you know, even NPS, survey-based data like that, to real engagement scoring, really using data to understand the value people get out of your product. And that is a much more sophisticated level of data, number of average sessions per day and this and that, even down to like weekly active users and things like that is really important data, but it doesn't tell nearly as much of a story as customer engagement scoring and which features users are getting the most value out of and those sorts of things. So for us at Hugo, we care a lot about daily active users on the simple side. It's easier nowadays to, I think, for people to part with money than to change habit and behavior. There's lots of SaaS fatigue and, 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 you know, sort of that sort of churn where I signed up and I put in a credit card and I forgot about it and it's not a lot of money and I don't really care about it. And that means a lot more about the product you're building than someone who's in there every single day, but waiting on an approval to put their credit card in. So daily active users is absolutely a North Star for us, but looking also at engagement metrics. So the level of sharing that occurs we think a lot about social capital. It's a big deal in 2019 and 2020 to go and share, tell someone to go and use a tool. It never used to be, but I'm putting my name and brand on the line internally as a company or in my network. So when people do that, it means really a lot to us, a lot more than parting with 30 bucks. So our engagement scores are very much around the use of the product in a daily sense and in ways that evidence habit in referral and sharing and putting their name to something and then getting value out of the product. So the features they're engaging with and, and the way they're using the really sort of valuable features of the product. Awesome. Okay. Now, one of the things you guys have been involved in is this 10x culture, right? Talk to me about the process of writing that book and, and what findings are important to know if, if a company out there is going to build a successful company culture. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, you obviously build and running a, a far larger company too. And I think it's interesting to see it from two perspectives. We're, we're small. We're eight people. We are first-time founders who have worked in other fields before. We definitely don't think of ourselves as culture experts or culture practitioners or anything like that. And uh, what we found as young founders looking for inspiration, for ideas, for feedback is everything around culture that's out there, the great books, the great advice you get so philosophical. It's so buzzwordy. We're looking for ways to go and actually 
get something practical and actionable and help me make help us make the right decisions with this with that tomorrow the next day etc so what we started doing at hugo was every time we had a really great idea and that comes from peers network investors those sorts of things but also from our customers we just keep a running doc we'd say hey you know what we heard about what they're doing at pendo which works really well or you know someone mentioned in passing which is really cool that they're doing at their company with or without hugo why don't we just throw it in the stock and we started shipping bits of things internally and there's some lots of great examples i can give you there and well, that document started you know we iterated and iterated and just kept fixing things for ourselves and then you share it with a few friends and before we realized that we had this sort of backlog of really practical actionable ways to build a great culture and there's a lot around meetings which is very very close to our heart but there's a lot of other areas too around the way you make decisions around the way you hire other important parts of culture so we put it in a book we we literally turned that those bullet points in that document into a story and we of course went out to friends of ours at zoom and atlassian and some of the really great companies out there from a culture standpoint and asked them to validate and give us other ideas and perspectives and started sharing it with customers and people that care a lot about culture in in 2020 and building modern orgs and that for us has really transformed the way we work as a business but also building an ecosystem around us and our customers and partners around the way modern tech companies should be building teams and should be building culture. So tell me some of those examples. We have to hear them. Yeah, sure. There's one really great idea that came actually from Shane Parrish. Um, he's got a blog, Finance, Finance Street blog and another podcast. And uh, we adapted that for us. And that's this idea of a decision log. So we... As, as, as you know better than anyone, basically one of the key things we're doing as any knowledge worker, but especially as someone building a business, is just making lots and lots and lots of decisions in quick succession. And the thing about decisions is that you, you know sooner rather than, you know sooner or later if it was the right decision or not. But our ability as humans to learn from those decisions and adapt for the next decisions is really poor because we have you know revisionist history. We have biases that come into play when I'm thinking back about the decisions we made. And at the same time, it's so crazy to us that I'm making good decisions, I'm making bad decisions, I'm trying to learn from them, but everyone else in the team is making the same good and bad decisions and in many cases making the same mistakes as us. So what we decided to do was build a decision log. Any important decision that you make, you fill in a type form and we, we ask you in the type form what the decision is, what the rationale of the decision is, so what you're thinking to get to that decision that you're making, the context for the full background, and what do you think the expected outcome is going to be? That might be down to, I'm going to use this SaaS tool right through to, I think we should move to an enterprise sales model from self-serve. Not that we've made that decision, but something really fundamental to the business. And you, you fill that in, you set a review date, and we share that at the end of our all hands. We share the key decisions that have been made by everyone this week. And then when it's up for review, we do the review as a team. And we thought it would be really great to allow you to actually look back you can't change it. It's, it's, it's stuck there in your Google Sheet through Typeform. It's what you thought was going to happen at the time. And it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, but it allows you to actually understand what you knew at the time, what you thought would happen, and what, what transpired in reality. So it's a real way to learn. But what we didn't expect to happen is this concept of shared consciousness, where by sharing the way you think and the way you make decisions with everyone else, very quickly, they start to better understand the way you think and the way you make decisions. So the idea of now when I'm not in the room or I'm doing something else, 
my teammates being able to say, hey, you know, I think Darren would look at it this way. Or I don't know if he would make that decision. What if we consider this perspective? Or even just doing that subconsciously allows us to operate far more cohesively as a team with ultimate shared consciousness purely because we've open sourced the decisions we're making. So one, that's definitely one of our favorites, the, the team decision. That is, that is interesting. So what have they learned about how you make decisions? <laughs> sometimes a bit quickly, that's for sure. I, uh, I, I definitely think, uh, yeah, definitely sometimes a bit quickly. But it's also the, the diversity of thought and perspective that comes into play. I am an Australian you know, person who identifies as male, lives in the Bay Area. I'm married. I have a child. I have, I have lots of different things about me that bring a certain perspective. Many other people in the team have all sorts of different perspectives from various other factors that they identify with and, and elements of diversity. One way that we've been able to achieve more diversity of thought and perspective is by learning how others make decisions and doing my best, which is difficult, but doing, you know, as an individual, doing my best to adopt their perspective and their consciousness when I, when I make decisions. So trying to implement other people's diversity and perspectives into the way you operate is one key learning that we've had from each other in the way we make decisions. Yeah, I, I like how you can make sure you have a diversity of thought and maybe make sure you have people looking at a problem that have different processes behind their decisions, you know, and that could add to kind of the different points of view, you know, the different outcomes. So you can think through the different possibilities easier, right? Instead of kind of delving into that group thing by having people that make decisions in the same way. Spot on. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, what's great about that? We're literally talking about a type form of Zappa Google sheet. Like it's so easy to systematize and actually implement these ideas into strategy you know that and that's a lot about why we wrote 10x culture we didn't want this level of culture strategy where we have to have an offsite every month where we're resetting the way we're going to build culture we wanted tips tricks ideas great little things that may work that may not work but allow us to continue to iterate and improve our culture as a company. And the more little hacks like this that we can find, that we can implement, the, the better we are, um, the, the greater culture we have as a business. And that for us is culture in 2020. It's not motivational posters on the wall and facilitators coming in every quarter to run abstract exercises so removed from what we're doing day to day as a team. Great, great. So I have to stay on this one little subject. What else about you and making decisions beyond making them quickly? Like what, what did they learn? I'm, I'm curious about the different styles you see. Yeah, totally. I think I'm, so the way I make decisions, right? I'm, a, I'm very, I'm very data driven as, as a personality. And it's, it's definitely one of the words that, you know, you'd use to describe me. I'm a huge fan of, of, of the tools and the, and the systems to have access to data and use, and use data to make decisions that way. So you can therefore use the word rational, you know, as, as, as the way I make decisions. Now, in an early stage company, unfortunately, you don't always have the, all the information. You don't, you can't always use data and, and, and make decisions that way. So the team, I've definitely got it, you know, developed that bit of reputation where the team see me as the data-driven person, the person who's relying on data to make decisions. But that is not always the best way to make decisions. The data, you know, the sample sizes are often modest or you don't know what you don't know. So relying on data that way can't be effective. I've got other people on the team and even my co-founder, Josh, who are very gut-driven people. They're very intuition-driven. And they're seeing my data-driven way. So we're making them a little more data-driven and using that information. And I'm seeing their way of doing things. So I'm trying to be a bit more intuitive and use my gut a little bit more and go with things, even if the data doesn't fully support the story. So that's definitely 
one way that I make decisions very different to others um, that's adapting the way they make decisions and the way they make decisions is absolutely adapting the way I make decisions. Cool. Now, what about other examples? I mean, this is really interesting talking about decision-making. Do you have any other ones that pop to mind, you know, that, that you captured that you're like, oh, this is something that's really unique? Yeah. My other favorite for sure is the four-hour meeting week, as we've nicknamed it. And that's really simple. That's a bit of a, you know, a marketing front on it. But the reality is, as a team, we do not spend more than 10% of our week in internal meetings. And uh, before you say it, that sounds paradoxical, right? We've got Hugo, a connected meeting note software, which is used you know, equally for external meetings with customers and partners, investors, and internal meetings as a team. And, and at the same time, we're pushing down the use of meetings. That for us has been one of the most transformative things we've done as a company from a culture standpoint. And the reason is, it comes down to what I mentioned at the beginning, the concept of meetings and the use of meetings is so abused in 2020. We have so many great collaboration tools out there. It is so easy to share information, to get people on the same page, to loop people in. Why do I go and have to make everyone stop what they're doing on an agreed schedule, come into a room or connect to a Zoom call and sit there for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours and receive information that can so easily be transmitted and sent in through through all these other channels. So by increasing the cost, if you like, of meetings, by reducing what's available to us, we only use meetings now for very distinct purposes, which is discussion, decision-making, and healthy debate. All the update, all the sharing of information, everything like that, we have, we've never been better around the number of tools out there to do that. So this sort of 10% rule, the four-hour meeting week, is definitely another strong favorite of ours from a culture standpoint. I like that one too. Uh, do you have a third one before we move on? Yeah. Um, trying to choose carefully. What else? Well, you can I... always give me a third and fourth. I mean, we're in no rush here. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a strong third. So one of, the other, one of the other things that we do, we absolutely default to open. And that's something that's become a lot more common. Um, a lot of great companies talk about transparency and information sharing. Atlassian is one perfect example of that. They've got an incredible culture of open and, and a brand now around that. Um, and we definitely do that. And I think that's sort of well accepted. You're hard pressed to go and find an, a young tech company that is stuck with team silos and need to know and things like that. But where we're different from a cultural standpoint is it's no longer enough in, in 2020, in, in our view, to just be open and, and transparent and share. You have to understand the difference between actively sharing and passively sharing. And what I mean by that is saying you're open and transparent by having a wiki or a Google Drive or a shared Dropbox or having the information available to everyone else is no longer open. Because that's not sharing. Making information available is not sharing. You need to actively push information out. You need to go and tell people what's happening. And by the way, that's exacerbated by new ways of working with remote teams, for example, and uh, 130 different SaaS tools in an enterprise. Because with remote teams, there's no more water cooler talk or overhearing conversations uh, like there used to be. With 130 different SaaS tools, Share having everything available in the wiki or in the Google Drive folder now means having everything available in 50 different places. People don't pick up information that way. So 2020 version of transparency and being open is pushing that information out. It's sharing it to Slack. It's telling people to go and watch this internal webinar or join the all hands where I'm going to go through this data or having reports that are automatically triggered to the whole company with important data. And we really focus on active sharing 
as a product, but more importantly, as a company, passive sharing for us, you might as well have not given them access to the folder. No one's going to look at it. No one's going to take it in. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, just having the information out there somewhere, it doesn't mean people consume it. <laughs> that's yeah. often, you know, not only just about sharing stuff that they might want, but sharing stuff that they have to look at. You have to, yeah. Putting it totally. out there doesn't mean they're going to look at it. And it's only getting worse, right? Like, you know, here are the notes from that user research. I'm like, well, is that in the CRM? Because it's, I guess it's, it might affect a customer. Is that in our product cloud solution with the rest of the data? Is that in Google Docs? Because, you know, this user researcher takes notes there. It's even worse than ever before. Like that approach and that thought has always been there. I think you can always argue for it. But in 2020, with the explosion of tools and over the last couple of years, and then the remote piece, it's harder than ever and more important than ever. Yeah, absolutely. So it brings us back to this you know, topic of, I mean, it all rolls back to the, the high level topic of culture, right? So tell me why you think culture matters so much, especially at startups. Yeah, I think culture is a buzzword and it's unfortunate we're still using the word culture, which you know we've been using since, I don't know, the 80s or, or earlier in business. But forget the buzzword, the substance of culture matters so much at early stage startups for two reasons. One is early stage startups are really finding ways to effectively monetize people to create value for everyone. And it sounds very utilitarian, but ultimately software is the best example. Like what is Hugo, right? We are a group of people using our skills in great content, in great code, in great material to go and sell, create value for ourselves and for investors and and the team and go from there. So if people aren't operating at their highest level in the best way they can, we are really undermining the value of what we're doing. It's like using crappy oil in your manufacturing machines because uh, that slows down your machines and makes them jam. And you would never do that if you were running a factory that was measured on output and quality of output. So we want to give ourselves and the team the best inputs and the best environment we can to be the best at what we do. And there's very people issues aside, I'm talking about that in a minute, there's a very strong business case for focusing on culture with that lens. And the second one comes down to the people side of things. One of the nice consequences, I guess, in tech, in startups, in you know, in the era we're in, is that there's so much demand for great people out there. People can afford to choose where they want to work based on your mission, your vision, and their values. So no matter however good your dashboards look or your, your valuation is or whatever, or the, the salary is, in 2020, People in startups, we've seen this firsthand, will go with a company that does something they believe in, that has the, the best culture, the best place to work with people that they're inspired to work with. So to be successful, you need to focus on that. You need to create an environment and a culture that people are attracted to. So those two elements together means that without great culture, you're at a huge, huge loss if it's even possible to build a successful business. Thanks. I think that's a powerful thought, a powerful statement on culture. So as we're kind of getting to the tail end uh, of the podcast, why don't we turn our attention back to Darren, right? So tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your favorite product? I'm the best example of that 130 different SaaS tools uh, enterprise I spoke about before. You know what I'd go with? I'd go with Loom. So for people who aren't familiar and, you know, the Loom team, probably uh, we, we don't know them at all. So, so you know, free plug for them here. Um, but uh, for those that aren't familiar with Loom, it's a really lightweight app that you either is a Chrome extension in your browser or you can install on any of your devices. And what it does is it lets you record video, audio, and or your screen and generates a quick URL that you can send to anyone from that recording. 
It's a really simple idea, right? But the reason Loom is my favorite product is because it's allowed us to communicate in a much higher bandwidth way. So one of the downsides of you know being a millennial in 2020 and all the tools we have available to us, what used to be a meeting, what used to be a phone call, what used to be having lunch is now a text message, WhatsApp, a Slack message, an email. And you're losing a lot. You really, you really are. It's very hard to get across how excited I am about something, how much I don't care about something, how stressed I am, how disappointed, how pumped I am, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, that is really being lost. And I can't communicate that as easily as I used to. But we're on different time zones as a remote team. I can't go and run over to you and be like, hey, Eric, man, I had the craziest idea last night. I'd love to build this. What do you think about that? Because you're fast asleep. You're working the other end of the world. Or it doesn't make sense to keep disrupting you while you're in the zone and you're trying to get some great code out. But I really want to get that across to you. What Loom's allowed us to do is communicate in a really high bandwidth way, but without that overhead. So what I do and what what our team does all the time is they if they have an idea or a thought, instead of just sending you a message, we'll record a video. And you're getting my face, my which sometimes probably isn't a good thing, uh, my my tone, my voice, my screen if it's relevant, full of passion, excitement, and and all the stuff that's otherwise lost in that Slack message or in that or in that email. So Loom really has had one of the biggest impacts on the way we work, even though it's so lightweight as a product. So yeah, I think that's that's really interesting about Loon, Darren. It's, it's a product I wasn't familiar with, but um, I'll have to check it out. So for sure. One final question it. for you: three words to describe yourself. <laughs> Depends who you ask. Three words to describe myself. So I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, just for a bit of context, I mentioned at the beginning I'm Australian originally. I grew up in Australia, and I'm in a very sort of suburban. Uh, you know, warm environment where everyone knows everyone. And my wife went to the same elementary school as me and, and that sort of environment. I've come over to the US and the Bay Area and I'm really, you know, like many US cities, really at the forefront of innovation and tech and, and exciting development and R&D and, and everything we all know about. And I think that's had a really interesting impact on me because the three words to describe myself, I would say definitely energetic, lighthearted, but aggressive. And, and it's such, I think they're all different things, right? They're, they're, you've got on one hand, the aggressiveness, not from a aggression standpoint, but from a wanting to move and do things fast and experiment and fail and try it again. That's absolutely come from my sort of Bay Area environment and, and being around these great tech companies who are doing such crazy things so fast. The lightheartedness is the Aussie relaxed you know, happy-go-lucky, fun culture. And I think that the two together is really interesting. And energy is, is all we've got in our game. We spoke a lot about culture and that before, but energy is how you execute on all of that. And in the absence of energy, I don't think you're, you, you, you know, you, you're, you're really at a disadvantage um, to build something great and enjoy doing it. So the mix of the lightheartedness, the aggressiveness and the, and the energy for me is I think how people would describe me. Awesome. Well, thanks, Darren. Thanks for your time today. This has been great. Likewise, great great to chat as always, Eric, and uh, thanks very much for having me on. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.